You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the U.S., and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking about why and how great clinicians fail at private practice. My guest is my friend, Gordon Brewer. Gordon, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, Well, thanks, Julie. I've been so excited about this and just uh, really excited about the fact that you're doing a podcast. That's just cool. You're perfect for it. Yeah. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the practice of therapy? Sure. Thanks. Well, I'm Gordon Brewer, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been private practice, um, started out part-time around 2005, 2006, and have uh, since that time grown into a group practice. I have a a group practice, King Sport Counseling Associates, and we're located in Northeast Tennessee, which is up in the Northeast, in what is called the Tri-Cities area, Northeast Tennessee, where Virginia and Tennessee kind of come together and touch up there in the corner. I started once I went into private practice. Uh, I went back it back in back in the day, and I'm kind of dating myself. But um, <laughs> there was a, there weren't a whole lot of private practice resources available. I mean, there was a few things, there were a few books, but really very little online or available to people about how to start a practice. So I taught myself a lot of stuff along the way. And so in, in 2016, I really got um, started listening to some podcasts and my friend, uh, my friend uh, Joe Sanok was one of his podcasts I listened to very regularly. He's a great, great podcast. I can recommend it. Practice of the practice. But anyway, I started, I was just intrigued by that and thought, you know, I wouldn't mind doing something like that myself. So I started the practice of therapy in 2016, really just as a blog and really with the purpose of it is just providing resources and things for people to start private practice. And so I, I put together, a, it's a, a free private practice startup guide that I wrote and put that out there and that's available on the website. But uh, then in 2017, I decided to do a podcast. And so I started podcasting and it has just just taken off. And so that's how Julie and I met in terms of, yes. uh, yeah, see, I, I guess you, you heard the podcast or something and, and connected with me and it just kind of went from there. Yeah, I've listened to your podcast for a long time. Yeah. So today, you and I were talking about why great clinicians fail. Um, and I want to start off by saying that I really, really, really want private practice owners to succeed, right, financially. The entire goal mm-hmm. of my accounting firm is to make sure that practice owners are profitable and they can stay in business. But the reality is that, you know, as good as a practice owner might be on the clinical side, the financial piece of the practice is often what can take down a business Mm -hmm. and force the business to shut down. So let's talk through some of the biggest mistakes that we've seen for you and your coaching and, and, and in my practice. So what do you think, Gordon? 
Yeah. So one one of the things I think that people, um, you know, they they hear from us all the time, Julie. Just know your numbers, and and what we mean by that is just being able to understand, you know, how the money is coming in. In other words, how people are paying you, and then, you know, what you do with that money after that to pay yourself, to pay for your the expenses of your business, and all of those kinds of things. But one mistake is is that people don't have a clear picture of what those actual numbers are. They tend to kind of, uh, oh well, I've got I've got this much in my bank account, and you know it looks pretty good, so maybe I can spend something on this, or you know those kinds of things. And so there's no real kind of scientific or scientific or data driven kind of way of doing that. And so I think yeah. you have to kind of get a, get away from doing that. I think the other thing too, and we were talking a little bit about this ahead of time, was um, just our mindset around money. Yes. Um, I think a lot of folks, uh, myself included, grew up with maybe some money shame or some money uh, feeling like money was bad or that we to make money was bad. I think, uh, you know, as therapists, we have a very caring heart. And somehow or another, we feel like if we charge people for what we do, then um, then there's something wrong with that. And that's a mindset thing. And I Why think, do you think that is, Gordon? Why do therapists tend to feel so guilty about making money? Well, I think uh, I, I think a big part of yeah, it just kind of goes to I think mindset in that we're we're focused and our training is focused on helping people, and then I think what for somehow or another we make make maybe a false connection is is that if somebody is somebody is paying me for something I'm somehow or another putting a burden on that person or I'm you know making their stress level higher or something uh, but that I think that's that's just a myth really I think most people that come to see us really expect to pay us yes. and want to pay us and want and to. yeah and so I think that's one of the I think that's one of the things, one mistake that a lot of people make is that, and what that leads to is that they don't charge enough for their services and they, they, they lowball themselves on what they're charging, charging clients. I want to circle back for just a second about knowing the numbers, right? Because we we talk about that from a, a theoretical standpoint that you should know your numbers. And that doesn't mean you need to study the P&L and be able to rattle off all those numbers by heart. But understanding kind of the basic mechanics of how those things work can help you also diagnose when something isn't working, right? And I, I just want to share an example with you that I saw just um, earlier today in my firm. We were looking at the numbers for a client and everything just looked really low. We were looking at the the number of sessions in the EHR. We were looking at the revenue and saying something just doesn't add up because this would mean the average fee per session is $50. And that doesn't make sense. I don't know of any insurance that, or and she takes private insurance there. I don't, don't know of any insurance that, that has a reimbursement that low. So just knowing kind of how those numbers flow, you can say, okay, something is wrong. Something is missing there's cash payments missing somewhere or there's you know something incorrect in the EHR and there's more accounts receivable than we thought there was right like mm-hmm. we can kind of dig in and figure out what is going on mm-hmm. um, instead of just assuming that it's all correct cuz sometimes it's not and we need to find find where right. where the money went um 
The other thing we can do though is also look at the top line versus the the bottom line and you know how much money comes in like how much people pay you that is the gross income mm -hmm. and that's a great number and people like to throw that number around right and say oh i'm a seven or seven figure practice or what a mm -hmm. six figure practice whatever that might be and that's great but if there's no money in profit who cares right it doesn't right. Really matter how much is coming in if there's no profit left at the end of the day right 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 yeah and so yeah you're exactly right i think it's so important to understand how all that works and to be able to also, you know, just keep an eye on all of that as you go along. I think one one mistake, too, that people do is they tend to procrastinate about keeping books. And, yes. I, some, <laughs> you know, and I kind of, uh, you know, I enjoy doing mine. I'm kind of I kind of geek out on that kind of thing of, uh, of you know, putting entries into QuickBooks and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll keep doing that until it's not fun anymore. But uh, if it's not something that you enjoy doing, by all means, outsource it. But it's not something you should put off completely because you can be you can find yourself in a deep, deep hole and not even know it. And then you end up at the end of the year with this huge tax bill uh, that you didn't didn't anticipate. And it's uh, I've seen it happen. And so it's, it's so important to keep a pulse on those numbers and understand how that's how that's working. And that yeah. huge tax bill is one of the things that can really take down a practice owner because most entities are pass through entities, right? Most legal entities. So that means the the profit flows through to the personal tax return, whether or not you take it out of the business, right? So it flows through either through a K-1, a Schedule C, to the personal tax return. So you personally owe that tax liability. And if you weren't mm -hmm. ready for it, that can mean a payment plan of several years, right? It can, mm -hmm. it can really drain the profit for many years to come when that wasn't planned ahead. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, the other, the other thing that I think private practice owners can, one of the reasons they fail is they don't have enough in reserve for themselves. Um, for, you know, you mentioned the tax bill. Unfortunately, I had a situation this past year, I'll share this, where I had a pretty big tax bill. I had like a $10,000 tax bill, Ouch. which I was just, it was, uh, but what it was related to is the fact that um, I had been using the ACA insurance before I switched over to having a group plan for my group practice. And so I was, I was paying through that. Well, guess what? I made too much money to qualify for the discounts. Right. And so, so uncle Sam wanted that money back right now. Well, fortunately, fortunately I had the reserve. I had, had set aside the reserve for that and it wasn't, it was painful to let it go, but still it wasn't something that I was just caught. Okay. I don't have the money to pay for this. So you know, I always recommend, and, and I'm not, yeah, you probably are close to this, of having at the very least two months of income and expenses covered and stocked away that you do not touch unless you just absolutely get into a big emergency situation. I agree. My yeah, number and, is three to six months. That's, yes. I would prefer to three to six months, but two months is still mm -hmm. better than zero months. So I'd right. rather have something right. than nothing. And Absolutely. I personally recommend doing that both 
on the personal side with your three, three to six months of your personal expenses, but also in the mm-hmm. business. I like having right. a, and you know, if a business uses profit first, that might be in a, you know, an additional that's far away profit account, uh, that mm-hmm. lives at a different bank, right? So it could, it could be in a couple of different, different spots, but I'll tell you what, when COVID hit, we were having very different conversations with our clients who had reserves and the ones that only had days worth of cash in their bank Yes, right, right. Yeah, and so that's a, I I would say if if somebody's starting a private practice, don't quit your day job too quickly. I mean, (laughs) if you've got a full-time job, what I would recommend doing um, is really focusing on building your reserve as quickly as possible on the front end before you jump in full-time with it. I know when I made the decision to go really truly full-time with my private practice, I really spent uh, a year preparing for that just financially in terms of getting that reserve. And you're right, Julie, I say at least two months, which is better than nothing, but three to six months is even even better. And so, um, yeah, so I made it a goal to save at least six months of what I knew I needed to live on and what expenses I needed to cover for my practice before I jumped in to doing it full time. Of course, you know, the, the, the advantage is, is usually at that time, you've got the cash flow and the momentum to where you can see that it's doable. Right. It's like slowly merging onto the highway versus Uh jumping right into the middle of the highway. Right. Right. Yeah. And so as you were starting your, your practice on the side, did it help also to be able to, you know, have that full-time job to help cover some of those startup expenses? Yes. Well, the way I, the, you know, the, again, the way I thought about it at that time was I did not want to go into debt at all with my practice. Uh, and, you know, that that is one way that somebody could do it is to get a, you know, a small business loan or something like that. Sure. But, you know, at, at the time, I just said, OK, what I make from the practice goes to the practice. And so I didn't necessarily use money from my full time job okay. um, at the time for my practice. I mean, I did, you know, for little things, you know, like I had to get a website and you know, all of those kinds of sure. things. And so I spent some of my money on that. But um, other than that, I really purposely just made the practice pay for itself from the beginning. I love it. Because that's a question that I hear often um, is how much should how much do I need to have saved for to start my private practice? And the reality is it's not particularly expensive to start a private practice. You just want to mm-hmm. really have some money saved for yourself personally, right? And I think that's where there's one advantage for mental health, whereas if you're opening a dentist office, there's usually a, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment that needs to be purchased. But mm-hmm. for, for mental health, that can really be fairly inexpensive to to start with either, right? I mean, right now in telehealth, um, just a few basic things and you're, you're pretty much ready to go. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that's, um, I, I guess I'm reminded too, Julie, and just thinking about mistakes that people can make is that they, in thinking about, you know, you're right, starting a private practice, pretty inexpensive. 
And I think in the beginning stages, it makes sense to do some bootstrapping in yes. terms of doing some stuff yourself and and really kind of saving some money. But eventually you get to a point where it's not to do it all is not a good return on your investment. And so it, that old cliche, sometimes you have to spend money in order to make money. <laughs> yes. Um, I think a lot of times people will hold off on spending money because they're trying to save so much money. But in, in the long run, what they're doing is they're hurting themselves because it's costing them, costing them more. I, you know, an example of that would be, um, I think one place that people tend to hold off too much is to is to hire a virtual assistant or somebody to help answer phone calls yeah, and stuff. The phones. Yeah. And so the way I think about it is um, if I can hire somebody, you know, the, the way that we make our money is we have to sit in front of clients and do therapy. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not making money. If I'm spending time uh, returning phone calls or doing the filing insurance claims or doing paperwork or all of those kinds of things, that time is not really actually bringing me any income. Now, it's part of the operations and it's necessary stuff, but it doesn't bring in anything for me. Uh, so I'm, my time is better spent in the room with clients. And so if I can free up that time and pay somebody 30, even if it's $30 an hour to free up an hour of uh, my time so that I can make $150 in a session, it's pretty easy math That's if you think about trade. it. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and so, yeah. What would you say to a clinician who says, but no one can, no one can answer the phones and convert the callers like I can? Yes. Um, and to some degree, I would say you're correct. <laughs> but that's also uh, that's also a place where we have to learn to let go of some things. Nobody is going to do it like I do it. But I promise you, if you hire somebody to do it, they will do it and they will do it well. It won't be exactly like you would do it. And I think uh, that's where we have to kind of be willing to kind of give up a little bit of control I could say when I when I made that switch and finally hired somebody to answer the phones, I actually got got more clients from that than I was when I was doing it myself. Because when somebody would call, if they were available, they'd answer the phone and they could get back to them quicker than I could. Sure. Because if I'm in session all day and I'm waiting till the end of the day, call people back. Well, guess what? They've probably called another therapist at that point because or two or three. Or yeah. two, yes. They kept and going so down good. the list. Right? right. Right. And so, yeah. So in that sense, you got to really think about your ROI, your return on investment with, with things like that. And I think um, don't be afraid to spend some money, particularly if you know it's going to be, it is going to create a good return on your investment. It's like a, it's like psycho, you know, it's like um, putting an ad or putting a, a psych, doing a psychology today profile, you know, if I get, you know, it's 30 bucks a month for a psychology today profile. And if you got one client from that, it'd pay for itself. And so just a, you know, one client in the month, it would pay for itself. It would. Um, and so, um, yeah. A lot of times I see also clinicians very careful about spending money when it comes to software, right? They don't want to add one more fee or one, one more thing. But then the, on the back end, 
they're spending hours of time trying to cobble together this weird system that's not scalable. That always feels like an odd one to me, right? I'd rather spend the money on the system, on the software, mm-hmm. and then save a lot of time, but also build that system that can grow with me. Because just like the phone, and you can answer the phone when it's just you, when it's just a solo practice, or maybe with one clinician. But what about when you have five or 10? There's mm-hmm. Hopefully, you're getting way too many calls for one single person at that point. Right, right. Right. Yeah, that, and you're exactly right. And uh, yeah, again, that's that's some stuff I learned the hard way uh, about outsourcing. And I've, you know, I'm a, I'm telling my age, but I'm one of those boomers. And so I think that, you know, you got to hang on to, you know, my, my parents grew up in the Depression era, so I kind of inherited kind of some of that. Sure. Um, yeah, kind of that mentality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I've probably spent hours and hours trying to figure out stuff like websites and all of that when I would have been be- just better served to, to to outsource it. Yeah. Agreed. Or or have someone y- y- young on your team that can do it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. That, that, that is much faster than like. I have someone on my team who's amazing with Instagram. I barely know how to log into Instagram. Yes, yes, I am the same way. We all have to do our, our strengths, yeah. right? Okay, right. so what are some what are some of the things that we that you see outsourced first? Yeah, so I think number one is somebody to answer answer the phones. Phones, and, okay. Um, Clerical work yeah, also because, does that fall in uh, there? Yeah, to some yeah, doing follow up with with clients, also um, you know sending out. You know, we in my practice, we prefer for people to fill out their um, paperwork before they come in, have that done. So we make sure they get the paperwork or at least, you know, links to our online platform that where they can do all of that. Those are that's a big one there, I would say, that needs to be outsourced, you know, depending on, you know, certainly like your website, you know, certainly, I, you know, I. I was just fascinated by building a website, so I built my own. But if I were to do it over again, I would, I would outsource that and just pay, you know, pay the fee or whatever, because I'm going to get much better results for somebody that knows SEO and all, True. all of those sorts sorts of things. Like social media marketing is probably a good yeah, one, yeah, right? That's absolutely. easy for someone else to do. Yes, it is. Um, you know, others are, you know, of course, bookkeeping and sure. accounting and those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think, uh, again, looking at what you, you know, I would say here's a, here's kind of a general rule, I, I think. Uh, and I learned this kind of from um, a guy by the name of Michael Hyatt. And he's got a got a course called Free to Focus that I took one time. And it was just about productivity. And I think if you could make a list of those things that you dread doing and that you just do yes. not like to do, uh, that's going to deplete your energy and you're just not going to enjoy doing it. The more you can outsource those things or delegate those things, the more productive you're going to be because it's just it, it's, it's drudgery. Oh, that or automated in some way is um is the thing to do with those, those kinds of things. So I agree. Um, I love Michael mm-hmm. Hyatt and I, that makes, it makes a lot of sense to delegate or outsource something that is not your area of genius. So do what mm-hmm. you're very best at and mm-hmm. let someone else handle everything else. Right. Right. And since you love doing bookkeeping. You, you, 
keep it. If you love doing something, you keep it on your yeah. plate, right? Right, right. Something that it's doesn't just... bring you any joy can go. Uh-huh. All right. One of the big mistakes, I probably see this one most often, and this can be a very crushing mistake, is when you hire a clinician, paying them too much. That yes. happens. That yes. first hire is so often paid way too much. And I think that goes back to the money mindset, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. And um, I know, Julie, you and I have talked about this before. That was a mistake I made when I mm-hmm. first started getting uh, hiring clinicians. I, I got them as contractors and I, you know, I felt like, okay, I want to be really generous with all of this. But when I, again, when I really ran the numbers, I was actually paying them out of what I produced. So in other words, they're, the percentage I was paying them was just way too high. And it didn't it was, cover uh, overhead, right? So you, it didn't cover overhead them and paid overhead. There was negative dollars left for every. Right, second. right, right. And so, yeah, exactly right. And I think, it, I think it is possible to, to, to pay clinicians a fair wage that is competitive and all of that without, having to to overdo it and um, you know the other thing too is just um, I've learned that you know sometimes we think of you know and and this is something I know we talk about uh, in our in our course Julie is just um, the difference between contractors and employees and and how you have to treat those from an IRS standpoint and that sort of thing you know certainly hiring somebody as a contractor on the surface is easier and right. it's clean, cleaner. But in, in the long run, when I switched all my people over to employees, I became much more profitable, which was interesting. Uh, and it's because I spent a lot of time running the numbers and knowing knowing what I had to bring in and what they produced and to being able to pay them, pay them well. Yeah. And what, what I typically recommend is for group practice to keep that uh, payroll, the clinical payroll for, for your therapist, keep that around 55%. And so for some practices, it's going to be a little bit below, some practices a little bit above that. But if you keep that in that range, then that leaves room for overhead, it leaves room for admin, it leaves room for leadership, and for owner's pay and profit. And I know mm-hmm. when I say that 55%, there's probably going to be some gasps you know, from, from folks listening, right? Like, oh, how I could it possibly. But that, that doesn't mean like everyone is at 55. That means that you might have some provisionally licensed that are at 40%. You might mm-hmm. have some folks with longer longevity that are higher. Um, and that includes the payroll tax, right? So like there's going to be a mix probably. But the reality is if that if your wages for clinical uh, employees are at 65%, that money has to come from somewhere. So it's either you yeah. have lower overhead or lower profit. And it's so important to have pro- to build in profit up front because you're taking on all the risk as the business owner, right? You have mm-hmm. a risk if someone slips and falls at your practice. You have the risk of getting sued, you have the risk of HIPAA compliance. And so for all that risk, there has to be some reward or else mm-hmm. there's no point. Right. And plus you're paying their half of their FICA and, and exactly. all of that as well. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, um, yeah. And I think it's, um, the other thing about it is, is that, um, 
you know, being a private practice owner isn't necessarily for everyone. Like I've got a, my, you know, from a number standpoint, my top producing clinician, which she's wonderful, has no desire at all to be interested in the numbers. She says, you know, you pay me every week. I trust you, you know, you know, and she's, you know, she would not be successful as a private practice owner because that's just not her, her forte or under understand, you know, understanding that. And so I think in hiring people, you find people that really, you want people that are motivated and all, all of that. But, um, there are people out there that they just really don't want to be in private practice. And so I think those are, you know, creating a place that is fun for them to work and a good place to work. You know, and part of the trade-off for me too, with my, with my employees is, is that I give, I give them the flexibility of schedules. Okay. They make, they make their own schedule. They decide when they want to work, don't want to work. I've worked out the numbers so that I know that, here's a particular, you know, this is what, this is kind of the level I'd like for you to kind of shoot for. If you want to go above that or just stay below that, that's fine. But I've looked at my numbers and I know that I can, can make it work. And so you um, can count on that revenue. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And private practice is, is not for, for everyone. Not everyone wants to do deal with the website and the sales and the marketing. And the truth is when you're mm-hmm. a business owner, you're kind of always on, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. people want to come in, do their clinical work, and then just go home. And there's a place for that. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of business owners approach their first hire from the standpoint of, if I was to work for someone else, what would I want to be making at this point? And so, and that's mm-hmm. why they tend to shoot a high and set that number high. And we're not saying we don't want to take care of employees. That's not at all the case, but there has to be profit or else there shouldn't be a mm-hmm. business. If you're not going to have profit from employees, you should just stay a solo practice owner. All right. So Gordon, what financial right. advice do you right. have for clinicians who are either going into private practice or scaling their business? Yeah. So one one, one thing I would say um, is read the book Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. And I think that that, when I read that book, and I've read it several times now, just the light bulb went off in my head, and it was just kind of like, okay, this is how you do it. And it's more about allocation and percentages rather than trying to figure out exact numbers. And Got it's... It. um. So that's yeah. the piece that clicked for you, the percentages versus specific dollar amounts. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. And so I think that's um, that's the thing. And I think the other thing I would say, the financial advice that I would give is you've got to start, and this is just, this is not only financial, but just with practice in general, private practice, is know your why. Know why you want to do this thing and, and have a, a clear understanding of that. And most of the time that's linked to our lifestyle. And just thinking about what is the lifestyle you want to create for yourself and using your practice as a vehicle. Because you can get bogged down really easy. I mean, there I, I know of clinicians that are in private practice and they're going they're going blazing guns with the number of clients they have and the number of the work they're doing, but they're still burned out. And so and it's because they haven't really looked at their lifestyle, what they really want for themselves. If you need a certain income level in order to maintain your lifestyle, 
how do you then think about how you structure your practice in order to do that? For a solo practitioner, there's eventually a ceiling there because there's only so many, only so much you can charge per session and only so many clients you want to, you can see uh, in a particular week. If that income level is where you want to be and that supports your lifestyle and that's, and there are a lot of people like that, they, they want to keep it at that level and no more. And that's great, but you've got to really kind of ask yourself, you know, really what you want and where you, you know, and thinking about where do you want to be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, and ask those questions and then build it, build it that way. That's great advice. Um, I was going to ask you what your favorite business or money book is. Is it Profit First or do you have another one for us? Yeah, that would be that would be one. But another one uh, that I really like is uh, it's called Company of One. And it's um, by a guy by the name of Paul Jarvis. And it also it talks about what I just talked about, or just about building the right size business that fits you rather than just building something for the sake of it getting bigger. Or keeping uh, up with the with the Joneses. Oh, right, right. Or comparing yourself to others and, you know, find what fits for you. Very good. So, Gordon, you and I, we've teamed up um, over the years on a lot of different webinars, and you mm-hmm. graciously invited me to collaborate on Money Matters in Private Practice. And uh-huh. we were actually just talking about maybe uh, bringing that course back with a new version of it. Yeah. Um, so we've got today a coupon code, right? For anyone interested in checking out the course? Yes. Julie 2020. Um, Julie 2020. Okay. Julie so that's 2020. Our coupon code. Julie uh, yeah. 2020 for 20% off. Yes. Uh-huh. The Money Matters course. Yep. So. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Gordon. It was such a pleasure having you. Um, we're going mm-hmm. to link to the practice of therapy and all of your courses in the show notes. And, uh, and then so, you also, Gordon, through the practice of therapy, you also have a few online courses also, right? C- correct. Yeah. So one one of the things that I was um, really intrigued by is, um, and, and I think this is really when I was starting to get questions from people, it's just really, you know, they want to know, okay, how do you how do you do this? How do you set things up? And so I, I really have been um, intrigued by just kind of the systems and processes that you need to put in place to run a practice. So you've got, you know, how do you do intakes with clients? You know, what paperwork do you need to need to have for them? Um, you know, what what sort of uh, platforms do you need in terms of online platforms and and that sort of thing? And then there's the whole financial side of practice. And so the courses and resources I've put together at the practice of therapy are geared towards helping people really in those starting phases and and helping and even for some people that maybe have been in it a while realizing that okay I need to tweak my my systems and processes. So I've got G Suite for Therapists, which is just a course about using the, the tools of Google G Suite. For those of you that have a Google account with G Suite, you have just a whole suite of, uh, of tools available, Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google Forms, all those kinds of things, Google Drive. But you can set those up uh, so that they can be HIPAA secure and HIPAA compliant. And so the course goes into that about setting those things up and how to use the tools in the context of a private practice. 
And then um, the other course, and Julie partnered with me on on, on kind of the more advanced version of that course, um, Money Matters in Private Practice, where I really dive deep into the whole financial side of private practice. This is stuff that none of us learned at graduate school or none of us learned, uh, particularly people that don't have any sort of business background. It's just stuff we don't know. And so I really put uh, that together to kind of give people a way of, of learning that in a way that's not intimidating and is not uh, not hard to learn. And I, I always say, if I can learn it, you can learn it. And so that's kind of the thing. And then the, the other things I've got, I've got different, some other digital products, uh, uh, paperwork packet for somebody that doesn't want to put all the work into putting a paperwork packet together. I've got a basic one there available. Um, I put together a system uh, and some templates that you could use with G Suite. There's one called Session Note Helper, which is just a system of using a Google form along with an add-on called Form Publisher that will produce uh, a narrative format uh, progress note just by checking off some boxes on a Google form. And through the magic of that add-on, it, it produces a narrative that you can then cut and paste and put into either, you know, a, a clinical record or a uh, electronic health record system, that kind of thing. So, yeah. That's really so, neat. Yeah. So, Thanks for sharing. Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Julie. This was great. If you're interested in checking out the Money Matters in Private Practice course, use the promo code JULIE2020 and you'll get 20% off the course at practiceoftherapy.com. All right, listeners, what is your action item for today? Are you making any of these mistakes that we've talked about? Is it time to change some things up? Head over to therapyforyourmoney.com for the full list of financial mistakes that can cause a private practice to fail and some tips on how to avoid them. Thanks for listening. If you need some accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com and click on the Green Oak Accounting button. There you can find out lots of information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services for private practice owners. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest's general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.